Happy Advent and Merry Christmas, everybody. Welcome to the Always So Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. I am your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and grateful that you have invited me into your home, car, or earbud for this next hour. It is a privilege doing this show for you. Well, today I welcome Father Jeff Muntz, Director of Spiritual Formation at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana, to discuss the life and spiritual teachings of Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Father Jeff is a Fulton Sheen superfan and wrote his graduate thesis on the spirituality of Archbishop Sheen. Even though his beatification has been postponed, I thought now would be a great time to revisit the riches of his message. Fulton Sheen was a frontrunner in using mass media to spread the gospel. In today's episode, we dissect the pillars of Archbishop Sheen's spiritual teachings, the indispensability of the daily holy hour, recognizing suffering is unavoidable in the spiritual journey, increasing our thirst to bring souls to Christ, and fostering a devotion to Mary. We examine how these spiritual principles apply to the life of seminarians, priests, and lay people alike. When the show is done, or even while you're listening to it, depending on where you are, of course, please don't forget to write a review or leave a rating. Every one of those helps tremendously in spreading the word about the show. Or if you don't feel comfortable writing reviews, please don't hesitate to send me a comment via Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I absolutely love dialoguing with my listeners and hearing about the good things that this show is doing in people's lives. So having said all that, let's get into this episode about Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Father Jeff Munz, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing really well. Fantastic, man. Okay, so here we are recording this thing late December. And the intention for this was that we were expecting a beatification this weekend. <laughs> and and uh, that's not happening. So just to briefly address kind of the realities of what's happening is that we, you and I were, were fans of Fulton Sheen and, and wanted to have this. I approached you about this podcast months ago. And we thought we had a beatification happening this weekend, but unfortunately it didn't happen. Further reports that are out there, uh, I think what I read on Crooks Now is that the Diocese of Rochester right now um, wanted to post, is the one who initiated the postponement. And the reason is because the Diocese of New York, or sorry, the state of New York seems to be going through similar uh, grand jury inquiries that Pennsylvania went through last year. And so the diocese said, listen, just in case of anything kind of comes out, um, we want to go ahead and postpone this because he was the bishop during the 60s there. And if something comes out during that time frame, then rather us just kind of know before. However, just need to let the audience know, nothing has been stated against him. This is the church being, I think, as precautionary as can possibly be, just to make sure that every T is crossed and every I is dotted. Um, but this is kind of an unprecedented thing about postponing a beatification. So any any initial thoughts that you want to offer or can offer you know, to, to, to the listeners about how we should uphold the, the church's desire to, to be cautious while at the same time not letting this cause doubt into uh, his great life. Yeah. So no, I think the first thing which you said is I've talked, spoken to a few people who are familiar with uh, this whole process. And uh, what they've said is that this really is unprecedented in the life of the church to have someone essentially given the green light, he's going to be uh, beatified, and then for there to be a, a pause in that process. So we are dealing with something that's unprecedented. And I think that gives us the the further context of what is unprecedented as well, 
is how the church is currently dealing with the sex abuse crisis, still trying to grapple uh, with this significant issue and trying to figure out how do we truly vet this process now uh, when there are these, uh, say, potential cases where a bishop was responsible for not, we're not talking about anything where Bishop Sheen himself it had, had any Mm-mm. issue, but whether there was perhaps a priest passing through his diocese, for example, mm-hmm. who was later accused of something, it's now saying we need to know what did he know and how did he respond to it. Now, my own sort of personal struggle with some of this uh, is there seems to be some back and forth between the Archdiocese of New York, also between Rochester uh, and the Diocese of Peoria. Peoria is saying, uh, we asked you very clearly, are there any other cases? Is there anything we don't know about? Mm-hmm. Because uh, Peoria before? is the one who's leading the cause for Correct. the canonization. Exactly. Yeah. Peoria right. is the one promoting his cause, leading it, and they've done all of the legwork with it. So they wanted to know, we want to know, is there anything else that we should be made aware of? And according to the Monsignor who is working on this, he was explicitly told, no, there's nothing else. And then right after the announcement was made that everything was proceeding forward, maybe a week or two later, he was told, well, actually, there may be some other cases. So now we have to put it on hold. So there's obviously either a communication breakdown, you know, is it dishonesty? I don't know. And why? There's lots of speculation. I'm not going to get into sure. to that because I don't know and I want to presume the good. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there's this, uh, so, something's off there is all I'll say. Yeah, so. got it. Uh, it's just a reminder that the church is human and uh, human institutions have lack of communication and systems sometimes don't talk to one another well. And, and that's an understatement uh, in terms of what's going on within the, 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 the church as a whole. But, you know, we're not going to derail this episode. Yeah. So anyway, so we were supposed to have a beatification. Regardless, I still want to talk about Fulton Sheen. Awesome. And I want to talk about the, his, his good life and his spiritual teachings and why those teachings are still relevant today. So I'll share my own kind of experience with him, which I'm not a, a, a super fan, I'll say. But he came to my life um, at, a, at a critical juncture. I was my freshman year in college is when I had um, my major conversion and where my life just kind of went in a completely different direction. Very grateful for the Brotherhood of Hope in there at Catholic Student Union at Florida State University, where really I, I encountered Jesus for the first time in my life. My sophomore year is when it's kind of like, okay, let's, let's kind of take these, these new seeds and let's keep kind of watering them. So I, I moved out of the dorms and, and first time I lived with guys who were pursuing holiness and virtue and guys who were a little bit older than me and kind of really took me under their wing and were mentors in, in many ways. And one of my roommates my sophomore year uh, Sean Garrison, who 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 works with with Focus or did work with Focus for a number of years, does a lot of the conferences and sings and is a great voice, great artist. Sean, you know, for Christmas that that year, my sophomore year, gave me the world's first love as a as a gift, uh, and and I read it and I devoured it, and I was like, dude, this guy, this Sheen, who is this guy? I mean, this he's got his finger on it. He's got this balance of this profound spiritual teaching, but but a pastor's heart at the same time is very clear in terms of how to communicate these truths in a way that is relevant to us. And that book was written in the 50s, 60s. I'm not even sure the exact publication of it. And here I'm reading it in the early 2000s and still being touched by it. And so I've, I've been kind of a casual fan along the way. I've read a couple of his books and listened to some of the stuff on YouTube now and, 
and just been been blessed by by his work in my life. Um, but how did you first encounter Fulton Sheen's work in, in spirituality? So I think my first encounter with him was growing up, uh, probably through EWTN, replaying old episodes of his his different programs. So that was a, sort of the first encounter I had with him. Uh, so I, I already had going into seminary this kind of uh, vague notion of who he was and had an appreciation for him. Uh, I think part of what also shaped uh, my appreciation for Sheen at the time as well. Uh, it was one of my first apostolic assignments as a seminarian. This is a college seminary, freshman year. I met a gentleman who himself had had uh, a sort of personal encounter with Sheen wow. through a letter that he wrote to Sheen at a time when he was struggling with a lot of the changes the church was going through post-Vatican II, his difficulty uh, with finding a place in the church for orthodoxy, mm -hmm. for fidelity to the magisterium. And Sheen actually hand-wrote him uh, a letter back wow. just with a, a very simple message of encouragement. And so it was that relationship for me as well, which developed this, this deeper love for uh, Archbishop Sheen. And then when I was in the seminary, I think it was Ignatius Press released uh, a, a newer copy of his book, The Priest is Not His Own. Mm -hmm. And this book just kind of swept through the seminary. Like a whole bunch of us were reading it and we're just enthralled by it. And so that was my first time actually reading something directly written by mm -hmm. him. And that opened up the floodgates for me. Like any book I could find by Sheen, I wow. wanted to read at that point. Wow. Well, what was it about that book that just kind of captured your imagination and, and heart? So I think the word I would use, and I use this often with Sheen is incendiary. Mm. Like it just set me on fire mm. for the priesthood. Mm. And it was incendiary also in a, in a, a purgative way too, insofar it was very challenging right. uh, to read uh, his perspective on holiness. And, and it was a, a good sort of having impurities burned away, so to speak, to be challenged by Sheen but at the same time, it's not this this thing of he challenges you and crushes you, but he challenges you and you want to get up with him and follow in his footsteps. It's like a, a general mm. leading his army into battle. And it's like, I want to follow that guy. Yeah. I, there was this one line I remember he wrote. It's in the, the first chapter uh, to his uh, in his book, Life of Christ. And uh, he, he says something to the extent, and I'm just paraphrasing, but what we need is men who are willing to follow Christ, who will be willing to drink death like water, right? It's these God phrases like that, that it's like, <laughs> you're like this great general who like, you're like, all right, let's yeah, do it. Let's do it. Yeah, Bring yeah. me that death cup. I'm ready. Yes. <laughs> Sacrifice. Give it all. Holy schmoly. Yeah. But that's, that's the gift of, of Sheen. Now, before we kind of get any further, like for people who don't know him or his life, can you give me just a brief biography, like a brief mapping out? When was he ordained? Where was he ordained? And I know he, he became bishop in a couple different places. Just kind of give me a, a sense of his a timeline here of, of, of his life. Sure. So he, he grows up, um, obviously, in a very different world than we. He's in Peoria, uh, so sort of a, a smaller place in a sense. He's not a big city priest, uh, but he grows up in this smaller place. From a young age, he has this attraction to the priesthood. Uh, and in fact... Um, he shares something that I just find it, it, culture shock in this regard. He said he used to pray for a vocation, mm. 
right? Nowadays, working in seminary, you might encounter a guy who says, I prayed that I didn't have a vocation, right? <laughs> it's like afraid, but he's actually praying, asking God from a young age to give him a vocation to the priesthood. So, and he, he felt that God did give him that. And so he enters seminary, uh, you know, at a, at a very early age, uh, right after high school, he goes through uh, his, his college seminary. Um, he has a, a very, uh, we find he's very gifted intellectually, and this was recognized within the seminary. So he does studies in, in Louvain as well. He's ordained. And then uh, it looked like early on, because of his academic uh, gifts that were, were made manifest, that he was going to be on uh, in academic track, so to speak. Right. Uh, but interestingly, he shares that his, his bishop actually called him back and asked him to be in a parish for a year. Um, and the bishop later shared with him, this was sort of like a, a test mm. to see would he be obedient. Amen. Uh, and, and Sheen very much speaks of uh, the necessity of obedience. And uh, he lived it. He lived it in his life uh, very much so. But anyhow, so he after that year of parish ministry, which was really the only year that he served uh, in the diocese of, of Peoria. Oh, interesting. Um, he then uh, begins teaching uh, at uh, Catholic U. Uh, he worked there for a number of years. Uh, and then in D.C.? So he moved DC. to D.C. and was teaching in their, so in their he faculty? Was, he was there. He was on faculty there. Um, and this is after his, his further study. So his, his background really intellectually uh, is in philosophy. So, okay. uh, and, and I think that's significant because it, it undergirds his ability to be able to yeah. analyze the thinking of the secular world and then to be able to formulate arguments to uh, be able to correct errors and also to lead people to the truth. Mm. Uh, so he, he's essentially uh, leading the life as, as an academic. Um, he eventually ends up uh, in New York. Um, he's working there uh, in the propagation of the faith. Uh, so this very much shapes his, uh, his zeal for the missionary efforts of the church. Mm. And in missionary, in the terms of evangelization for sure, but also missionary in terms of an extension of the charity of Christ to the poor. Both of those elements uh, were very essential to him. Uh, eventually, he is uh, named a bishop. Um, he's a bishop of the Diocese of Rochester. It's a very short-lived uh, uh, time for him, and, and I think it's important to remember this is post-Vatican II, so there's a lot of uh, confusion at those times, a lot of challenges. He was very much a proponent of trying to initiate the calling of the council to go out into the world. And uh, at the same time, it seems as we look back on him through you know, the eyes of history, he was not a, a very good administrator. Mm. So he was this great orator, mm -hmm. but not an administrator. He had these wonderful ideas, mm. but maybe didn't know exactly how to, to execute them. And so in many ways, his tenure as a bishop, it, it's looked at as a failure, wow. really. And wow. uh, and I think that certainly was hard for him to experience, but also in a way shaped uh, who he was. And uh, after his failure, he's basically kind of ousted from the diocese. And then he sort of then begins this whole second career 
uh, as a prolific author and would go around oftentimes giving retreats and shared that his one of the deepest loves of his heart was to give retreats to to priests um, because he had a, a particular love for priests. So when does he end up in New York? So New York was uh, uh, after uh, his tenure in uh, Peoria. Rather, okay. he was there working through the propagation of the faith. So, so in but that's when he became archbishop. No, arch. Uh, he became archbishop in uh, Rochester. In so, Rochester. Yeah. Okay. Got so. it. Okay. So, so here's this guy, brilliant, serves in the parish for a little bit, then moves into teaching and, and propagation of the faith, both in service of the poor, but in evangelization. But it seems that in that that second piece of evangelization is really what he's known for: writing. When is the TV show? When when did the, the I was about to say podcast, but that wasn't right. <laughs> no, our podcast. I'm sorry, the radio show sure. and and that that kind of uh, that media because he was really the first to kind of sure. say we got to get on these waves. We we right. we what we call the old media now in terms of the radio and the television sure. specifically. Um, he was one of the first, if if not the only, real prolific Catholic thinker or or figure in that time that became so popular because of the TV show and because of the radio, like what inspired him to say, I need to get on these platforms? So I think mostly what inspired him was his thirst for the salvation of souls. That's what undergirds everything. And behind that, as he's just really burning in his heart to bring souls to Christ, he's also looking at the culture. He was this great analyzer of the culture and and movements within the culture. And he saw the real potential there through media of how he could utilize that to bring souls to Christ. Uh, and so he is the one who kind of reaches out and initiates that way. And I, I think part of what he shares was his inspiration, you know, listening to these evangelists on the radio himself. And he's like, well, we as Catholics need to have a voice in that as well. And Got so it. he really pushed forward in that regard, begins uh, on radio uh, and then uh, he had developed such a name for himself uh, through his exposure on radio that as television becomes a thing, uh, then he's a, a pioneer really in that as well. I mean, it's hard for people to, fa- it's hard for me to fathom this. His show, Your Life is Worth Living, yeah. was on NBC on a Thursday primetime. Yeah. I mean, like. No, it's ridiculous. That's like yeah. absurd. Like in today's day and age to think that like a priest or bishop would have a regular television show on NBC at all is outrageous. But then to think primetime, eight o'clock or whatever time it was, I don't know, it was a primetime episode, like show, like to think that that is given over to to an archbishop speaking about the truths of the faith and evangelizing is is on her. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. No, it is. (laughs) And I think it says two things. I mean, one thing, obviously it speaks of the charisma that he had. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it does also indicate something of the culture in which he Cor- lived, right? Correct. Obviously, we are in a different place. And I think even at the end of his life, he was realizing, right, that there wasn't still a place for that, mm-hmm. you know, or, or the culture had shifted so much that mm-hmm. there wasn't room, there wasn't an openness to that anymore. So it's it's sort of coming together of a few essential ingredients. Obviously, the gifts that he had but also a culture at that time, which was receptive to his gifts. Yeah. So you've said in terms of what fueled his popularity was was both and this recognition that the culture was much more open religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his charisma and his wit and his intelligence kind of made him a, a like a perfect fit for yeah. 
a mass media type of personality. I mean, when he came here to the Dome, who we are in New Orleans recording this, he came to the Superdome in the 70s or something mm-hmm. and, and spoke. He sold the thing out. Yeah. I mean, the Superdome sits like 80,000 people. Yeah. I mean, again, to think of like a bishop coming, touring, selling out this massive venue. I mean, I know he was there with other yeah. conference speakers or whatever, but sure. just thinking about him selling out the Superdome is, it, again, these are things, these are numbers that are so hard to imagine in today's day and age. Oh, for sure. Uh, that it, it speaks to how unique of a personality that he was. Um, okay, so I, I, what I love about him is, as we said, his intelligence and his wit. I think in, in the book, or one of the books that I read was, I know that he has Your Life is Worth Living, which is a collection of kind of his, his some of his teachings from his show. There was a follow-up also to that that came, I think, even later, which is called Your Life is Still Worth Living, which is still kind of like a collection of his teachings. But in that, the, the, the forward to that book, um, he said something that just cracks me up. And I think this, to me, is kind of how to, how to exemplify Fulton Sheen for me. He said, in the, in the forward to the book, he says, there's, there, there's two types of people in the world. Those who get up in the morning and say, good morning, God. Uh, and then there's t- people who get up in the morning and say, good God, it's morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he says, this book is written to those second class of individuals. <laughs> You know, just beautifully kind of detailing like the realities of life and the hardships that are there and and, and the beauty of even the title, Your Life is Worth Living, that there's meaning and purpose in your life. And even in the hardships and the chaos of the 60s and all this other nonsense that was happening in that time. And I mean, what a what a bizarre time. I could do a whole episode on the 60s with somebody else. I mean, from like the civil rights, Vatican Council, sexual revolution, assassinations, the moon race. I mean, it was just what a, a Vietnam starting. I mean, just what a what a. Anyways, I won't go into all that. But <laughs> but for him to just be this 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 voice, this this anchor, um, to to encourage people to kind of keep moving forward in their life, uh, and to do it in a way that was to some degree entertaining, um, in in not in a bad sense, but but in a, in a in a in an encouraging sense that he really kind of put his finger on it. Um, so thinking about his teaching as a whole, and what I want the focus of our episode to be on is really kind of his spiritual legacy. Just kind of easing into that. What do you find is kind of the crux of his spiritual teaching and what of his teaching do you think people need to be reminded of in today's day and age? So why should we still listen to Fulton Sheen? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of why we should listen to him is because the truths I believe that he teaches are universal. Uh, Another element is that, you know, he's been referred to as, say, a prophet for our times, that a lot of the ideas he puts forward uh, were, in a way, very forward-thinking. Because of his philosophical background, he has this acutely sharp philosophical mind. He's able to analyze and to understand the ideas out of which the culture is working, but also where those ideas are leading. And so in many ways, we call him a prophet because he's able with that acute philosophical mind to perceive the conclusions. If we continue to think this way, if we continue to act this way, here's where we're going to end up. Yeah. And so I think because of his foresight in that regard, using not only all of his intellectual abilities, but also these profound graces he's receiving from God, he's able to analyze and then to perceive and then to try and bring in the truth of our faith to be able to counteract some of those movements. Okay. All right. So when you're saying that, I'm thinking of like JP2, who is also a philosopher at, at nature, and John Paul II, 
what we've read or what I've read, at least I should say. So from my experience, what I read in terms of his thinking about communism was similar, just that like anthropology is off. It's a bad philosophical arrangement for the person and for society. So it's only a matter of time for this thing to, to topple over. And so let's kind of keep moving forward and pushing against it, but this is what's going to happen. Um, and so Fulton Sheen then coming from that same approach, the same philosophical approach, what is it that he saw? Like, what was the foresight? I mean, what, what was it, what was it that, that he anticipated would happen? Well, I think, I mean, there are, there are many things in terms of what he saw, but um, he saw a rejection of God, mm. uh, certainly. So this rise in uh, a secular atheism, uh, he saw a rejection of, of truth. Um, he saw uh, this rejection of uh, relationship with Christ, I think, as well. He, I mean, he sees so many different um, movements that are occurring. Um, obviously, he had a particular uh, sort of penchant for being able to attack the errors of communism, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in the, the political worldview, so to speak, he had a, a particular um, sort of acuteness for determining things. Um, but then as we sort of move forward more towards uh, the end of his, his life, I think what he's able to sort of diagnose there is the rise in secularism, really, mm. um, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of faith, um, the rejection of a relationship with God, really. Yeah. So I think those are the the principal things that he foresees coming in a way. Yeah, great, great. In your thesis that you wrote on on Fulton Sheen and his spirituality, particularly with the priesthood, and we'll get to that in a little bit, you said something that was that was beautiful. You said, Sheen does not so much provide a curriculum of spirituality so much as he provides a classroom in which many of the spiritual masters would be welcome to teach. What, what did you mean by that? So when we talk about different you know, forms of spirituality, we may say Ignatian spirituality, we may say Carmelite spirituality. Um, and sometimes what can happen is I think we can get kind of locked into one school of spirituality. Yeah, correct. And to sort of promote that as this is the way to pray. Right. But in actual fact, what we find in Sheen is he doesn't identify himself with sort of one school of spirituality, but instead his principal concern is to lead people to Christ most especially through his promotion of the holy hour. And so what I mean is that what he wants to do is to lead us to spend this hour to Christ, but he actually doesn't get very specific in terms of how we ought to spend that holy hour. He doesn't say, for example, you have to practice Lexio Divina in an Ignatian style, or you have to pray in this manner of you know the Carmelite tradition, but he more is interested in leading you to sit at the feet of Christ, uh, oftentimes one of the images he would use is that Garden of Gethsemane and spending, could you not stay with me one hour? So it's more about forming a relationship with Christ. Um, and then there's this openness to drawing in those particular ways in which through the spiritual tradi tradition, Christ has led souls into deeper union with himself and how we as individuals are drawn into greater intimacy with him. But his primary concern is First, get there and be with Christ mm. and commit to that. Spend that time with Christ. That's awesome that you said that um, because people have asked me, obviously as a marriage counselor, when I give lectures to, to couples or different things, people ask like, what's the, what's the best way that we can keep our kids in the faith? And so much, as, so much emphasis is put on apologetics and catechesis. And if people understand and they know the truths of the faith, then that's how we're going to keep our kids 
a lot of parents who are concerned about their teenagers right now going to college, different things. And while certainly we need to know the truth of the faith, for me, my advice actually is teach your kids how to pray. Yeah. And so my, my oldest son, who's 15, I actually bought him uh, Your Life is Worth Living. Awesome. And I have him reading that because what I want him to know at this age is how to really foster that relationship with Christ, how to really pray and to understand what, what the, like the importance of prayer. And if he can get that down now while he's under my roof, all the theological, all the catechetical things that he needs to understand, again, I'm not saying he doesn't know those things and he's getting those things right. in his Catholic school and the education he's receiving him at home. But all of that is secondary to him knowing what it really means to, to pray and to have that relationship with the Lord in a, at a very intimate, um, at intimate level. So you're oh, saying that's what Fulton Sheen is encouraging. Yeah. And if I could share personally Please. in that regard, growing up, I think one of the greatest gifts that I received through the whole of my life is through my parents. And it was, I was in high school at this point. So I had a, a brother who was in high school. I'm, I'm sorry, a sister who was in high school. A brother was still a few years younger than me. Uh, but my parents decided what they were going to do is they were going to alternate. And so on Sunday morning, uh, one week, my mom would go and she'd bring my sister to adoration. Next week, my dad would go to adoration Sunday morning and I was gone with him. And if I'm being completely honest, I, sometimes as a teenager, I didn't want to be there. And I resisted. I pretend like I was still sleeping when my dad would come to wake me up, these sorts of things. Um, but I am so grateful to my parents for heeding that call and really taking that that role as a parent very seriously and bringing me to Christ. And I know for certain that there were graces being poured into my heart from that time with Christ. And not only the example of my dad in terms of what does it mean to be a father, uh, but also that sort of hidden spiritual work that God is doing within my heart as I'm there before him. Uh, again, uh, Fulton Sheen um, speaks of that, that power of the Eucharist as we s just are in, in the presence of the Lord. You know, I, I think sometimes of that uh, image in Scripture in the Garden of Gethsemane when they mention our Lord's name and the people fall down, yeah. right? Just that there's power flowing from the Eucharist that we can't see with our, our human eye, but that in faith we know is there. And so that reality, even in those mornings when maybe I wasn't fully disposed right, to receiving our Lord, there's still something happening within my heart as my dad brings me there to spend that holy hour with the Lord. And so I agree 100%. Like if there's anything that you could take from this to enact in our lives, it's to pray. To pray. That Because that is, there's no Fulton Sheen without that holy hour. Yeah. It doesn't exist. And so why, why, why is that so important for him? Like why is that the staple then of his, of his spiritual teaching? So he shares that it actually started uh, when he was in the seminary. This, this whole notion of the holy hour wasn't something that he necessarily learned uh, by example or through teaching, uh, but he gives two different scenarios. So it's it's not exactly clear of exactly how he first started the practice, but the point being, uh, at some point early on in his seminary formation, he made this commitment to spend one hour with Christ every day, and he stayed faithful to that for 60-something years of his life. Wow. Every day. And it was out of that commitment, then he formulates a theology uh, of that experience. but and, and that became, whenever he would preach a retreat to anyone, 
that was his encouragement uh, that we would make this the the one commitment we would walk away from that retreat with was this commitment to keep the daily holy hour. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And that's tough too. I'll say in, in my own life, I've committed, I can't always get to the chapel. I'm, oh, sure. I'm not a priest and so I don't have access to the Eucharist all the time. But for me, it's a mandatory 30 minutes with scripture yeah. every day. I don't care where I'm at, how I start. I always That's how I always begin my day right. is 30 minutes with the Bible. Because if I can't get to the Eucharist and I have the divine revelation in the word of God sure. and, and I can spend an hour with, with the Lord praying in scripture and, and uh, for me, it's a, it's a non-negotiable yeah. uh, because I've seen the fruits of that in my own life, the, 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 not just the psychological, but of course the spiritual, the graces that flow and kind of working out and, and really giving the first fruits of my day to the Lord and saying, mm-hmm. okay, God, I'm going to, before I get into my emails, before I get to checking Facebook, before I get into all these other things that I have to do, and you know, Lord knows you got to get all those things done. I'm going to start by just giving you this time and, and sacrificing and offering it to you as the first fruits of my day. Here it is, Lord. Right. And let's get started. Now, I know with like in seminary formation, you're at the, you're at the seminary right now. You're at Notre Dame Seminary still as the director of spiritual formation for the house there. When I was there as the, the uh, director of counseling services this is where our friendship kind of emerged. And I know you and I have spoken about kind of both and the spiritual and the psychological, but I'm thinking about right now, like his advice to, to seminarians. I mean, it seems that sometimes the seminarian life is so busy mm-hmm. that like squeezing in a holy hour is, is difficult or even parish priest. Sure. You're a priest of the archdiocese of New Orleans that sometimes the priesthood can just get so bogged down by the details of, of running a parish and, and managing all the things that the idea of a holy hour holy hour, it just seems so, uh, what's the word here? Uh, fictional? Sure. <laughs> I mean, if that's the word I can use mm-hmm. or, or that it has to be this mandate, you know, that I got to do it because, because that's what I need to be able to say that I need to do so that I can run through the program and get ordained a priest if I'm a seminarian. What encouragement would you offer then to your brother priests or to seminarians about the importance of, of making it about quality and not just rushing through their time in the holy hour. Well, one thing to say first is um, if we've gotten to a place, let's say in seminary culture, or if we've gotten to a place in the priesthood where the priest is saying, I don't have an hour to spend with the Lord, something needs to change, Mm. right? So I think the first step we have to look at is culturally, where have we come? If we have become mere functionaries and workaholics, then we've actually lost touch with our identity as priest. So that's the very first thing I think that needs to be said. Like, right, we could just say, well, it's just the way it is. So we're going to have to develop a new spirituality now, where maybe it's going to be instead of the holy hours, the holy 10 minutes, because that's all we have to give to the Lord. But if we're honestly going to sit back and say, you know, we don't, we don't have time for an hour, I think there's something off in the way we're living out the priesthood and that and and if that's if we created that environment in the seminary where guys were so busy where every moment of their day was so absorbed in some activity something's off mm. right something's off so so there has to be in one way a challenge to the culture and sheen understood that it's not that he didn't have a busy priesthood he was extremely busy yeah, clearly a guy who was popular in radio and TV and traveling, doing exactly. retreats and stuff. Yeah, that's a busy guy. But he saw this in one sense as the principal sacrifice that the priest would offer to God every day. Is I'm going to sacrifice 
this, which is perhaps my most precious commodity, my time, I'm going to make that sacrifice to you, Lord. And uh, he he shares in his book even some humorous stories of you know getting locked into churches, things of this nature, uh, because he kept that so faithfully throughout the whole of his priesthood. Uh, but I think it also ties into this you know vision he has of he speaks of the priest as not merely a priest but a priest victim someone who sacrifices and suffers for someone who embraces the cross. And he says, well, then the principal sacrifice that we are going to offer is that sacrifice of our time. And we're going to make the effort to set aside that time of that hour to the Lord. This is Dr. Mario Sacasin taking a quick break from my conversation with Father Jeff to encourage you to head on over to faithinmarriage.org. Here at the Woolwoods Community Faith in Marriage Apasa, we are trying our best to help you in your faith journey and in your married life, if you are married. At faithinmarriage.org, we have a number of great resources available for you if you're interested in doing a married couples retreat. There the dates are for you to be able to figure out when would be a great time for you to come on a retreat with your loved one. You can find all my previous episodes of the Always Hope podcast or read the blog, as well as uh, Jason Angelette's At The Heart YouTube videos, where he does a wonderful job encouraging couples in how to grow in their spiritual life together. For more information on any of these endeavors, please check us out at faithinmarriage.org. Man, goodness gracious. Speak more about that because you did write about extensively about the priest victim mentality. What does Fulton Sheen have to say about that? And why why approaching the priesthood from that perspective is crucial in his understanding of the priesthood as a whole? So while he wasn't a scripture scholar, Sheen studied scripture extensively. And, and this is principally seemingly how he spent his holy hour was immersed in the word of God. And so he gives, uh, particularly in his book, The Priest is Not His Own, um, he gives this whole extensive, really could be called a theology uh, of this idea of the, the priest victim, which he really believes is a reflection of Christ and is the only way to fully understand the priesthood, is that the priest is the one who does the offering, but that in Christ, the perfect high priest, what we find is that he is both the offerer and the one being offered in that sense. And so because all of us who are priests now share in that one priesthood of Christ, and that would be both for the ministerial priesthood, those of us who are ordained, but also even that common priesthood, it all flows from this one priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so we are all called in some sense to be one who does offering but one who also is offered himself or herself as well. And so uh, this whole idea then of uh, the holy hour, it becomes sort of the, the principal place where the offering is made, but it's that living out of this role of you're not merely a priest, but a priest victim. Uh, and he, he goes into sort of extensive um, examples of, of ways in which, you know, for example, the priest may be... Um, of his day had kind of walled themselves up in the rectory, he'll say. You know, so they they carry out the the functional role, the ministerial role of of the priest, uh, but they're not in any way sacrificing, 
offering themselves, uh, uh, being immolated upon that altar uh, of sacrifice as well. And so this is where he gets into the idea of uh, that we have to also go out into the world. It's not enough merely to be sort of the sacristy or the sanctuary priest, but it's, it's a both and. It's a both and for him. I think that notion of victimhood is, is can be lost. Well, I'll say two things. can be lost, or in some ways it can be a little, little too cutesy. So I think sometimes I, I've, I've gotten emails from priests who tag you know, their, their, their email, priest and victim. And I, I wouldn't put that in an email line. I, I think that's mm-hmm. a little too cutesy about, you know, or a little too um, romantic in the notion here, you know, being like, oh, I'm a priest and victim. It's not something that you want to you know, badge or, or you right. want to promote, it, but it's a recognition that your life is an offering. And you said so beautifully that that is both for the ministerial priesthood, but also for the common priesthood that we as followers of Christ, I mean, listen, we're in Advent right now. We're about to get ready to celebrate Christmas. And we, this is the time of the year where what? We behold the Lamb of God. And who is the Lamb of God? It is Jesus. Jesus, the infant, but that infant who grows up to be the one who offers himself for our sins and fulfilling what was done by the all those lambs who were sacrificed during the Passover sacrifice. But Jesus you said offers himself. And so in our life, we can't escape this notion of, of sacrifice. It, and, but there has to be always, always a, a balance in all of this that we could say, oh, well, the sacrifices, I'm, I'm so busy. I'm, I'm giving all my time. I'm, I'm, I'm hurrying myself. And what you're saying is that like, no, no, that's not what Fulton Sheen would say. He would say workaholism isn't an adequate answer to this. That like, right. But you can't wall yourself off either in, in always be in prayer. And that echoes, I think, even somebody like Gregory the Great, who at the time, you know, around the year 1000, 96, whenever he's, 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 uh, he's, he's made Pope, that he was rich in, in, the, in the, the ancient monastic tradition. But when he becomes the Bishop of Rome, he's saying, all you guys are, are afraid of being diocesan priests because you, all you want to do is pray all day. And, that, and as, a, as a monastic himself, he values, of oh, course, sure. the, the value of that. But he's like, there comes a point though where you're seeking comfort and hiding behind the walls. I need you, I need you out here. The demands of the church is that we need you out here taking care of the people. Right. And so as as always, there needs to be a balance. You can't say you got to be too active and fall into this, the heresy of activism where where all you're doing is running around killing yourself. But then on the other hand, you can't be you can't be praying all the time unless that is your vocation, unless you're called to the Correct. monastic life. But the secular priesthood, diocesan priesthood. I'm a layman. Here I am. I'm in the world. And this is the life that God has called me to. That there has to be this this constant balance between between both things. I have to take care of the the real practical disciplines of my life. But part of that is also to sacrifice and say, like, all of this that I'm doing isn't even really about me. And, and if it's all about God and about a mission to God, then I must always be centered and anchored in him first and foremost. And that's the, that's the main thing. Yeah, and part of what Sheen talks about is that in his own day, in seminary formation, and even early on in his priesthood, what he saw is that there was an inadequate sort of priestly identity or priestly spirituality being promoted, that uh, oftentimes what was happening is there was this vision of a monastic spirituality, and then somehow you were supposed to cut and paste that on top of a parish priest. And I think what Sheen is trying to say is that's not an adequate approach, that we need to examine this from who is the parish priest, and then how does he live out these elements of spirituality, these universal truths, 
in his life as a parish priest. Uh, and so it's not so much about trying to create monks who are parish priests, but parish priests who are authentically parish priests and living out a spirituality appropriate to that way of life. And I think this is also why Sheen then had such a beautiful love and perspective and spirituality for married couples, for single persons, for anyone in the world. He also had an understanding that we have to live out this spirituality according to our state of life. It's a it's a reformulation of St. Francis de Sales' insights, I think, that he promotes in the introduction to the devout life. You say this so beautifully in your in your thesis that he kind of becomes this, well, Fulton Sheen kind of becomes this, um, I could say, anchor between the between pre-Vatican II and then after Vatican II, and specifically when it comes to the priesthood, that if what you're saying, and tell me if I'm right or wrong and what you read mm-hmm. and what you just said, that pre-Vatican II, there was too much of an emphasis on this kind of monastic sense of the priesthood and a lack of, of evangelism or going out and working. But then post-Vatican II, there was an over-exaggeration on the working elements of the priesthood, um, which which was certainly part of the call to, to get out and to, to evangelize and to serve the world. But it seemed that in the immediate aftermath of the Vatican Council, it's almost like we threw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And what you said in your thesis and what you read is that he's trying to say, no, 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 like let's, let's hold a tension between both of these. We can't, we can't abandon our prayer life for the sake of being missionaries. But so we have to, we have to hold both. We have to take the good Correct. of what was there prior to it. And then, and then integrate it with what the Second Vatican Council is encouraging us to do. Exactly. It's, it's a both and. It's seeing that, yes, indeed, the priest has to be set on fire in this intimate relationship with the Lord, but that's not a fire that's meant to be kept for his own comfort and well-being, but that it's meant to be shared with others. Uh, so he, one of the talks he would give, he'd say is, First come, then go. First come to the Lord, allow him to set your heart on fire. Then go out into the world, then cast that fire right, to set other hearts ablaze with the love of the Lord. Uh, and so he brings those two elements together so well, but he's dealing with it, you know, uh, you know, not having lived in that time period, I can only imagine what that must have been like, this tension that existed. But so often he talks about this, this tension where you had some who were intransient, sort of willing to move in any way with the initiatives of the Second Vatican Council. And so they sort of retreat and almost make the parish into a, a little monastery, a little kingdom, you know, uh, sort of like this island within the midst of this crazy world. And then you had other priests who throw everything out altogether. And he talks about this as well, where, you know, we're not even going to dress as priests anymore. We're going to just dress like everybody else. We're going to blend in with the world, become one with the people. And so this is where you get, he says, instead of, you know, the priest victim, you get the the priest social worker. The priest, he's a slash something else. He takes on this other role, but he's not really a priest victim anymore. He loses his identity. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really fascinating. The third part that you mentioned with regards to his spirituality in your thesis, you said the holy hour is indispensable. The notion of victimhood is indispensable. Then the third piece, if I remember correctly, was devotion to Mary. Is that correct? Yeah. So so tied in with this, so I, I would say, so the holy hour and then um, devotion to Mary. And then the last thing I would talk about is a thirst for souls. And we've kind of already touched upon that. But 
for sure, the Blessed Mother was so, so, so vital to his spiritual life. Um, and he, he shares uh, in his, his own autobiography, this was something that was impressed upon him from a young age. It was a little uh, book he was given, uh, and he used to pray certain prayers to our Blessed Mother every day. So he really formed a relationship with her, so much so that he would refer to her as the woman I love, right? Mm. That there's there's a real relationship there. It's not just this exercise of piety, of reciting words, but he really believes Mary is a person who, in God's providence, is there to walk with us on this spiritual journey, to lead us to Christ, to make us holy. And so, so much of what he's trying to promote there is that the priest, but all of us, have to have a relationship with the Blessed Mother. And, and that it's a, a genuine relationship of love. It's not just this external recitation of words, but that it's a, a person, right? This person who is there in my life, who wants to be there, who in God's providence ought to be there to lead me closer to him. This may sound dumb, but what does he say is the, the basis of that? Then how do you how do you begin to foster that relationship? Because I can hear people saying everything, right? Where it's like, oh, well, you know, the Catholics always marry this and that. Um, or uh, it, maybe it, it just doesn't add up for them. So where where... Where would he recommend the being the, the foundation of fostering that relationship with Mary? So maybe I'll back up and I'll say, where would I begin? And I would say, <laughs> go to his book, The World's First Love on mm -hmm. the Blessed Mother. So it'd be the first thing I'd say, right, to try and understand more fully his perspective on her. Uh, and he gives a just sort of a beautiful exposition of her role in salvation history. Right. So I think that's where we want to always go. That's the root is scripturally what is Mary's role in salvation history and recognizing that in God's providence, she has a significant role, not only in bringing the Messiah to the world, uh, but then also raising him. Uh, you know, some would say even teaching him how to pray. And then in a very specific way, seeing Mary as being given to the priest. Right. At, at the time of the crucifixion, you know, behold your mother, those words to John. Uh, but by extension, all of us are to hear those words, behold your mother, that there's a real sense in which Christ is giving us to Mary and Mary to us as well. Uh, and so that's meant to be lived out in a real relationship. So if someone were to say, well, where do I start? I'd say, well, first start with scripture, but then maybe read Sheen's work on our Blessed Mother. And then oftentimes what I'll encourage people to, you know, particularly sometimes um, the rosary may not be the best place to start for some of us. And, and even some of the saints, you know, I can think of uh, Therese of the Zoo, for example, who, who had difficulty praying in that particular manner of praying the rosary. And I know some people, right, they'll depict me with devil horns for saying this in a sense, you know, <laughs> well, because... Well, I saw them grow, you know, yeah, as, you, as, saying, as you're saying that, yeah, you're such a pagan. Right. And, and, and I say all of this out of a place of like the first way I learned how to pray was through praying the rosary, really. This idea of being able to meditate on the mysteries of the rosary. So I have a, a very profound love for that particular devotion. But there are other ways to approach Mary. And, and the principal way, I think, is if we don't know where to start, it's just to say, Mary, help me to have a relationship with you. Like, invite her to 
lead you, invite her to, to have uh, a relationship with you and she'll take over. Like, I really do believe that if we just open our hearts and ask her to come to us in that way, she will take the lead. And sure, maybe that'll formulate itself in someone's life and beginning to pray the rosary. Uh, it may formulate itself in some other particular novena that someone begins to pray. It might formulate itself through a pilgrimage, right, to Magigoria, to uh, Lourdes, to one of these sites. Uh, but Mary, if we invite her in that way, she will take that initiation in a relationship, I believe. What did Therese of Lisieux say? I never heard that before about struggling with the well, rosary. Yeah. So Therese of Lisieux, just, she struggled to pray the rosary. It was just one of those things. And, you know, I can think here as well, like even, um, you know, uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, some people struggle to be able to meditate in that sort of imaginative way, to sit there and to kind of, you know, walk through these scenes of the mysteries of the rosary. Uh, they're intellect is just not formulated in such a way that that's a very helpful method of prayer for them. Uh, and so um, I think the saints there, that example, I'm grateful to the Lord that they they share this with us because it, you know, there, there can be a guilt that some people experience. Yes. Like I tried praying the rosary and it wasn't working for me. There's something wrong with me. Uh, when in actual fact, it just may be that's not the particular way that the Lord has formed you to to live out that relationship. Like that, that's there's nothing to say that that is the only way to have a relationship with our Blessed Mother. Yes. So I I hear a collective sigh of half of my listeners right now. You know, everybody's just like, oh, okay. You know, there's different ways of being Catholic. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of the Church. The Church it means universal. So there's going to be lots of palette, lots of color here, lots of different ways of expressing. Certainly, we would want to say, start with the rosary. We encourage the rosary. We're not saying don't pray the rosary. Right. We encourage the rosary, certainly. But if it doesn't work for you, at least where you're at in your journey right now, at this point in your life, that's okay. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you or, or that there isn't another way for you. Like, go seek him and then find the way that you connect with him. And that's really encouraging to hear that. Two of these great saints, Teresa of Avila and, and Teresa of Sioux, spoke about that. But that doesn't mean to abandon devotion to Mary altogether. No. There's there's other ways of being able to to do this thing, man. Or to express a devotion. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. One of the things I used to to love to do uh, in my room uh, in a parish is uh, one particular parish I was at. I was really close to uh, Whole Foods, so I would go over there and I would just pick up some fresh flowers, you know, uh -huh. and put those in front of the image of our Blessed Mother, right, as a way of an offering. Uh, to her. So that, yeah, we can get creative, like to really think of it as a relationship. It's a living relationship. It doesn't always have to be so formulaic, uh, but to really recognize that Mary wants to be a, a person in our lives, someone we relate to in that way. Tell me about the last piece there, thirst for souls. Why was that important for Fulton Sheen? What did he mean by that? So uh, really what it meant was he saw his principal role as a priest of bringing souls to Christ. That's, that's in a way, why he is ordained as a priest. Um, and he saw that as like, if we can keep that right, uh, it helps us to know what our particular mission is as a priest. That is my role, to bring souls to Christ. Um, and Sheen, one of the things that I, I've appreciated, and, and I'll, I'll be completely honest here as a priest, I'm sometimes afraid to take his advice in this regard, but he said that every time he went out, he would pray, Lord, send me a soul. Wow. Send me a soul. Like that, that really, almost more than anything, I think exemplifies 
that heart of the evangelist that he had, that he was desiring that the Lord would send him someone to bring to Christ. Um, and, and, and in my own way, when I was working on my thesis, what I would pray is I would say, Lord, please send me a soul, but be gentle with me. <laughs> because part of what he talks about in his works is that in some ways we don't know what we're asking when we pray this way. And so he shares that sometimes he, he says every soul comes with a cost and sometimes that soul is great. And so he sees some of the, the persecutions he endured, the physical sufferings he endured, all of these are ways in which Christ is allowing us to participate with him in that work of the salvation of souls, of bringing souls to Christ. So, you know, it, it, it might sound like this nice, you know, pietistic, romantic thing. Oh, send me a soul and it's all going to be so wonderful. And I just pray a Hail Mary and this person's converted. No, it's going to cost me something is, is the reality of, of what he's saying. But the fact that he knew it was going to cost him something, the fact that he had experienced the cost and sometimes it was great, and yet he didn't stop praying that prayer. I think that's what really reveals the beauty of this thirst that he had to bring souls to Christ. And of course, it's it's the thirst of Christ himself, right? right. Some interpret that idea when Christ from the cross is, I thirst, right? Really what he's thirsting for is the love of humanity. He wants mm -hmm. to bring hearts and unite them to his own heart. That's what he's thirsting for at that moment. And so Sheen, he had that thirst built up within him, I think principally, again, because he spent time with Christ. Mm. As he spends time with Christ as his best friend, that then burns within his own heart. He takes on Christ himself, and he has the same thirst for souls, so much so that he was bold enough to say, Lord, send me a soul, even if it's going to cost me something. That echoes Mother Teresa. I mean, Missionaries of Charity, every chapel in the Missionaries of Charity has those words, exactly. I thirst. And that's the, the, the central premise. And so a man here who would speak about these things, who honors the victimhood, the suffering that, that is part of life, that is part of, of, of being in this common priesthood. The question always is then, why do, what do we offer this suffering for? What do we offer this for? And then here it is. It's, it's for others. It's for the salvation of others. If we are going to be Christ bears, if we're going to be Christians and, and enter into this, then that means that, that our life then is at the service of others. And that takes a particular role for the diocesan priests, but that takes on a very different, it may, that the mission may look very different for a layperson. I'll give an example here. Um, I've said this on the show before, I'm, I'm training for my first marathon and part of my training has led me to, to go to physical therapy. And uh, the physical therapist I go to is a faithful Catholic. And the other day I was in and we were, we were chatting and and I asked him just kind of about his experience as a, as a PT and why is he, why didn't he go into ministry and what kind of kept him in, in PT rather than being a, a youth minister or something of that nature. And he said so beautifully to me, he said, listen, I've, I've done lectures and I've traveled a little bit, but honestly, in my heart, I felt like this is where God called me to, was to live my life as a physical, physical therapist. Mm -hmm. And while I don't broadcast that I'm a Catholic physical therapist, the people that are hire, people who come to me know that this is part of it. And part of taking care of the full, per, the whole person sure. is that we need to take care of the physical issues. But this gives me an opportunity to be able to talk to them. And if people are open, then I pray with them. And I thought it was so beautiful. Just like in your life as a professional here, this guy's a professional living as a physical mm -hmm. therapist with all the expertise that he has. But then speaking so beautifully about living his, 
his his life to taking those risks of of wanting to pray for people and wanting to, to initiate that. And sometimes he says it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you see people are open to it, sometimes it's not. But that he's he wants to just be docile to the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's the thing is that like again, going back to even like this notion of holiness, we 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 set like the standard that it's supposed to look like X, Y, and Z. Right. And it just, man, it's a big sandbox that we play in. And the beauty of the church with regards to the elevation of saints is that you look at all the saints. Some of them are authors. Some of them are not intellectual. Some of them are of mm-hmm. service. Some of them can't. You know, it it really is. And it's supposed to be a reminder that like in our life, holiness takes on a, a, a very particular call. We all have this desire to live the Lord, to, to serve the Lord and live for him. But but like how that's going to manifest in my life, Mario Sacasa is very different than it's going to manifest in your life, Father Jeff, or, or, or any of the listeners. And that's the thing. That's why we go back to this notion of prayer and then being docile to the Lord and say, okay, God, how are you off? How are you inviting me to be a sacrifice for others today in the context of the life that I am living right now? Yeah. And I think one of the things this makes me think of is a big theme of Sheen on the saints. He says in several different places that uh, these lives of the saints that he you know, received uh, in that particular time period, he said that the saints, they've basically wiped away their humanity. And what we're left with is something that's inimitable, mm. right? This, this, you know, fiction, if you will, uh, of this sort of walking angel. You know, one of the examples he would always use is he says that, you know, we're told that St. Thomas Aquinas, right, who supposedly was a, a bigger person, right? He, he probably had a good appetite, but that he liked herring. And that some people like were scandalized by this idea that Thomas Aquinas might actually have a preference for a particular food. You know, these sorts of things we find in a certain period of time in the lives of the saints that we try to veil and hide away their humanity uh, as if humanity in some sense uh, is incapable of being sanctified or as if humanity in some sense is a roadblock to holiness when in actual fact, Right, the Word became flesh. Amen. Right, Christ wants to sanctify That's our right. humanity. That's what He's coming to do. He came to redeem, right, to sanctify our humanity. And so, if we are going to become holy, we're going to do so as humans, mm. holy humans. And so, all of those different aspects of our lives get brought together into this picture of our growth and holiness. Amen. Amen. And that's what we celebrate now, the incarnation. Exactly. The, the incarnation, word that's it. Flesh. Yeah. The word became flesh. He yeah. became human. And, and to wrap this thing up, then, again, the title to show your life is worth living, it's not that he's saying your life is worth living only if it looks like X. Or that other life, that's the one that's worth living. Right. Or what that person is doing, that's what's worth living. Like, there's no comparison. It's an encouragement to each and every single one of us to be reminded that God desires our holiness and desires our intimacy in the circumstances that we find ourselves in is part of his providence. And so yes. m- my life is worth living because, because of what he's invited me to do in anybody's life is, is, is worth living because we are all made in that image and likeness of, of the Lord. No, for sure. And, and, you know, not all of us have to become uh, orators in the sense that Fulton Sheen was. That's no, not what he's calling we, us to. And, and we don't all have to be uh, priests or religious. No. You have to discern in your life, how is God, where is God calling you? And if you have right. a desire for the priesthood, 
then honor that desire and go for it. If you have a desire for a religious life, test that desire. If you have a desire for marriage, test that and, and go for it. Sorry. No, it, no, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And and it's to recognize that any of these principles that we've talked about today, certainly growing in intimacy with our Lord, but even this role of bringing souls to Christ, right? Any state of life that can be lived out. It's it, it, no one has a monopoly on that. Nobody has a monopoly yeah. on that. All right. Well, Father Jeff, I've greatly appreciated our conversation on Fulton Sheen. Anything to plug you personally? You got you. you you don't have a blog or anything, do you? I don't. No, just pray for me. Pray for Father That's Jeff, everybody. I, I pray take for all him. the prayers I can get. <laughs> but but if uh, if anybody wanted to read more about Fulton Sheen, wh- where would you recommend? Where would you start? So, I think the first book I would reference is Life of Christ. Um, so Sheen wrote that particular book at an extreme moment of suffering in his life. You know, there, you can read in his biography he was essentially being persecuted by his own bishop. Uh, by Cardinal Spellman. Um, and uh, so Sheen was under a ton of stress and he was, he was truly suffering. And it was out of his suffering, he came to a deeper understanding of the suffering of our Lord. And I think it really formed his understanding of who Christ truly was. And so he writes at that time, the life of Christ. Uh, and so it's just a beautiful exposition, not only of the life of Christ, uh, but in a way, I think it's also revealing of the the very heart of Fulton Sheen as well. So start with that. And if they enjoy that, uh, find him on YouTube and you can yeah, hear, that's, his, that's booming, the other hear thing. his booming voice. Yeah, on, if, if on reading is a difficulty, um, there's a ton of material out there in terms of, um, you know, audio and visual uh, for, for Sheen. It's prolific. So. I, I mean, I, I, I think about if he lives in today's day and age. I mean, it, it'd be remarkable. I mean, I guess oh, yeah. Bishop Barron is kind of a, um, the baton has kind of been passed in terms of like a, a bishop who has this presence kind of culturally. And bishop Barron doesn't just speak to kind of in the Catholic circles. He's, he's got a, a wider reach as well. Uh, so it's kind of the baton's been passed to, to the word on fire, I guess, group. But I just think in today's day and age, I mean, it, it would be remarkable. Oh, no, yeah. for sure. And it's, it's that reality of recognizing right, these technologies that we have. Certainly all of these things can be used for grave ill, right? We know. Uh, but there's a sense of as well trying to bring Christ into that arena, trying to sanctify. And, and I think when we do that can become a, a tremendous instrument of evangelization. And that is obviously what someone like Bishop Barron is doing is he's trying to utilize uh, these technologies that we have so as to continue that same one mission of Christ to Amen. lead souls to heaven. Amen. That's what we're trying to do here on this show also. So this is a podcast and people are listening to this on their earbuds driving to work probably. <laughs> so last question, ask all my guests, Father Jeff, what gives you hope? The love of Christ gives me hope always. The love of Christ. It, it doesn't even have to be uh, seen, whether in my own immediate circumstances of life or even sort of in this this broader picture of the world. And I'm not saying I don't see hope out there. I see tremendous hope out there uh, through the beauty of the human person. You know, as a priest, that's one thing I've been privileged is to encounter just remarkably holy, wonderful people. And that's been a gift as much as, you know, I can turn on the news and become very aware of the evil that's out there. There's beauty within the hearts of human persons. Um, but first and foremost, Christ in the world, he's still here, right? His presence is still here. He's there in the Eucharist. And we have that 
that grace at any opportunity to, to go there and to be with the Lord. Uh, and so that, that's what gives me hope is Christ first and foremost. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Father Jeff, for joining me on the show. God bless you, man. Keep up the good work at Notre Dame Seminary, forming those guys, and have a great Christmas. Thank you, you as well. Well, there it is, everybody. My last episode of 2019, my first full year of doing podcasts. I started the show in October of 2018. So 2019 was my first full year doing the show. And so thank you, all of you, dear listeners, who regularly give me your time and attention. It is a sincere privilege to be able to share this episode and to earn your time. So thank you all so much for listening to the show and being of great support as well. And so I ask as we move into 2020 to please continue to spread the love. Tell people about the Always So podcast. The only way that it's going to grow is through word of mouth. And so I am immensely uh, grateful for, for you, my dear listeners. As we end this year, I just want to pray for each of you and wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I pray that this holiday season is a tremendous blessing, that you may have a wonderful time with your family and friends, and to just rejoice in the great mystery of the Incarnation, and to always be reminded that Jesus loves us, that God sent His only Son to die on the cross and to rise again for us, for our sinfulness, and that His desire is intimacy with us. And so let our hearts be open to receive him wherever we find ourselves today, whatever struggles, whatever longings we may have in our hearts. May we cling to hope and to rest in him and to trust in his providence and that everything that we desire that truly is of him will come to fruition. So God bless everybody and have a great day. Mm-hmm.